Hello. I'm just going to put this back on. Excuse me. There we go. I'm Eleanor Delport. Ellie, as most of you know me, um, I think I know most people here, but there's a few new faces, so it's lovely to see you. I've got the joy of speaking to you today from Luke 20, verse 20 to 26. If you could turn that in your Bibles or on your phone, as long as your phone doesn't distract you, that's okay. Um, if it's distracting, just read it on the screen. Okay, Luke 20. So we are in Luke's gospel. It's a story of Jesus' life, and we are coming up to his death and his resurrection in the last week of his life. And in this last week, Jesus' conflicts with the religious people are getting really heated. He said some very insulting things to them like, you are whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside you're full of greed, full of malice. You're not looking after the poor. You care more about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you. And you can understand they're not very happy about this because they don't want to turn and repent. They're very angry at Jesus, who is claiming to be God. He said that I and the Father are one, and before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be God, and they don't think he is, therefore it's blasphemy. And therefore they want him killed, but they've got a problem. They are ruled over by Romans, and only the Romans can decree the death penalty. So they've got to find some way of convincing, of convincing Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus really needs to die. He's not just a problem for the Jews... He's a problem for Rome, and therefore he needs to die. Now, you'd think that would be quite easy because he's the king of the Jews and therefore surely an enemy of Caesar, but he's not actually picking fights with the Romans. He says very little against the Gentiles, against the Romans, the non-Jews. So they have to try and trick him into speaking against Rome. So this is where we come to in Luke 20. Luke 20, verse 20 says, So they watched him. Oh, I've got my clicker. I was going to use this. In, I was really tempted to use this earlier in the songs and make it look like that John had... He wasn't doing a good job, but no. <laughs> I didn't. I held back. Um, <laughs> there we go. Uh, sorry, it's a bit close, isn't it? I'm getting a bit my breath. There we go. Um, Luke 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him... They sent spies who pretended to be sincere. So the spies are being sent from the chief priests and the teacher of the law. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So they want him killed by, by Pilate, the Roman governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So start with a bit of flattery. It's going to work, isn't it? I mean, butter him up. That'd be fine. I'm sure he won't fall for, you know, I'm sure he'll fall for it. And they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So I think they've got it all figured out. Because if he says, no, it's not lawful. They run off to Pilate and they say, look, he's telling everyone not to pay taxes. He's clearly a revolutionary. He clearly needs to die. If he says, yes, it is, then they turn to his Jewish followers and say, really? He's in league with the Romans. So they think they've, they've got him trapped. But he perceived their craftiness or their duplicity. It's a nice word to say, duplicity. Their craftiness. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, that's a coin, whose likeness, whose image, and whose inscription 
does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said, but marveling at his answer or astonished by his answer. Oh, sorry, I should be clicking. I should have let John do it. Um, ah, there we go. Astonished by his answer, uh, they became silent. They became silent. Something Jesus has said has silenced these accusers, has silenced the spies. I'm just going to pray again because I, I like to pray. And then we're just going to unpack this. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that this is here. I thank you that you are among us, Holy Spirit. And I bind the enemy's schemes to try and take away this word from us this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me to speak well, that you would open up our hearts to be able to receive what you have for us, Lord God. And show us your heart through this text, Lord God. Amen. Amen. So what has he just said? He said, whose image and whose name? Give me a denarius, a coin. Whose image and whose inscription? What would be inscribed around a coin is the name. So whose image and whose name? Caesar's. Okay, give it back to Caesar. But give to God what is God's. And something about that astonishes them. Now, to understand why they're astonished, you've got to think how they would have received this. These are the spies sent from the teachers of the law. So they're probably experts in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Where does God place his image and his name in the first five books of the Bible? Well, page one, Genesis one twenty-seven. it says, in fact, I'll go from verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So where's God wanting to place his image? On mankind. Yes. Thank you, Jen. Gold star. Um, I, know, I ask no trick questions, by the way. They're usually very obvious. Uh, he places his image on man. What does that mean? So in the ancient world, the pagan world around the Israelites, when people would worship a spiritual power, they would, make, they would take a block of wood or a stone and they would carve an image out of it, a, an idol. And then they would have a ceremony in which they believed that the spirit would come into that image. And so when they were worshipping, praying to, bowing down to that image, they were actually honouring the spiritual power that it represented. And God doesn't want us to make idols, in case that wasn't clear. God is saying, you are my image. My spirit's going to be in people, and I've given them a job to do. He says, they're going to rule over all of creation on my behalf. So we are, this is the glorious vision of God for humanity, that we are to have the spirit of God in us. We are to partner with him by his spirit to bring his righteous rule, his love, his flourishing, his care to all of creation. We're to do that with God. That was his image. That was his vision for humanity, that we would be his image. But there's a problem. You go a page forward and people reject his image. They start listening to the serpent. They start doing what is right in their own eyes. And they don't want to bear God's image. They want to bear their own image or the image of the snake. So... 
is God going to give up and say, well, that didn't work? No. He comes up with a rescue plan. And his rescue plan is that he's going to choose one people group from Abraham, his family, the Israelites, and he's going to say, I'm going to put my image on you. And through you, I will bless all of the nations. So the Israelites become enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out to God, the God of of the Bible, Yahweh. They say, Yahweh, save us. And he responds. He raises up an image bearer, Moses, a man who has the spirit of God in him, who partners with God to see God's people released from slavery. Ah, yes, there's a true image of God there, Moses. He's submitted to God. He's got his spirit in him. He's partnering with him. That was God's vision for humanity. Moses is doing it. And he brings out with the ten plagues and through the Red Sea, parts the waters, he brings out his people from slavery into the wilderness, and then he proposes to them. He doesn't just want Moses as his image bearer. He says to all the people, the whole of the Israelites that were there, he's inviting them all to become his image. He's saying, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His treasured possession. He's released them from slavery to become his treasured possession. His treasured possession. But they need to enter into this willingly and voluntarily themselves, so... Moses takes this word back to the people and says, this is what God said. He said, we're going to be his people. You're going to be my God. What should we do? And everyone's like, that sounds like a great idea. Yes, he's the God. He sent the ten plagues. Yes, we want him. So she said, yes. (laughs) They said, yes. The people of God said, yes, we will marry you. And so then God says to them, okay, get yourself ready Um, consecrate yourselves for two days. On the third day, everyone wash. They are making themselves ready for the wedding. The wedding. I have my my brother-in-law's wedding in two weeks' time. Very excited. And I've got a special dress for it because I'm not going to turn up in, you know, my tracky bottoms. That that wouldn't be appropriate. God's saying, get ready. Get ready. The wedding is here. So then you have chapter 20, the marriage vows between God and and his people. However, we don't usually call them the marriage vows. We usually call them the Ten Commandments, which in my mind makes me think of a really annoyed policeman. So I prefer to think the marriage vows because this is the moment in the story where God is saying to his people, right, this is it. We're making a covenant, a binding agreement, a marriage together. A legal thing is happening here between him and his people. And so... In these marriage vows, which is what Jesus is referring to when he says the image and the name, it says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That makes sense. When I got married to Jean-Paul, I said, I am going to take you, Jean-Paul, to be my lawfully wedded husband. It wasn't Jean-Paul and everybody else. No, it's one person, one person. And then at the end of the vows, it said, forsaking all others. She might say, that sounds mean and restrictive. It's not. It's a marriage. God is saying, no other gods but me. 
no other gods but me. And they are entering into this voluntarily. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself an image. Or some say a carved idol. It's the same kind of idea. You shall not make for yourself an image. Why? Because you are the image. You are going to be my image. And you don't need to go after other gods. You don't need to go after other images. Like um, Dennis shared this morning about the bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Don't go picking up crumbs elsewhere. There's no point. It won't satisfy you. It's not good for you. Him alone. And then it says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A jealous God. What does that mean? Jealous sounds, in our culture, is usually used almost the same as we use envy. But in the Bible, they're two different things. Envy is, I want what someone else has. Or something good is happening to them, and it's not happening to me, and I'm kind of annoyed. That's envy. Jealousy is I'm jealous for my covenant partner. I've made a binding agreement with my people, and therefore I want them to do well. I don't want them to be unfaithful. I want them to be mine. That's how God feels about us. We're his treasured possession. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for this covenant he's made with us. He loves us with an never-ending love. And he says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not misuse the name. You bear the name. What you do reflects on God. You bear the name. Don't misuse it. If you go about doing evil and saying, we're Yahweh's people, we're God's people, we're Jesus' people, and you're doing evil, what kind of a witness is that? You're called to be a holy priesthood, to show the world what he's like. So we are called to bear his name well, to bear his image well. Where does God place his image and his name? Places it on his church. When the spies say to come up to Jesus asking about taxes, Jesus responds, ah, sorry, first of all. No, I'll carry on. Jesus' response is talking about his people, his people. So it's not envious of, of Caesar. He's not, he's not worried about Caesar. He doesn't want his taxes, he doesn't want his money, he doesn't want his kingdom. He wants his people back. He loves his people. He's made a covenant with his people. He's made a covenant with Abraham's family. If you wonder whether God's forgotten about the Jews, he hasn't. He loves them with a never-ending love. He loves them. And praise be to God, in our generation, more Jews are coming to Jesus than in the previous generations, almost like in an unprecedented scale. And that is glory to God. That is glory to God. He loves them. He's not given up on them because God doesn't give up. But people give up. People do. Almost as this is happening up the mountain with Moses, people down at the bottom of the mountain are already breaking the covenant. They're building a golden calf. And throughout the Bible we see God is faithful. He's calling his bride to himself. He loves his people. He will never be unfaithful. He's always faithful. But people, we are weak. And we get tempted and we fall into sin. Or we're neglectful. Or we get distracted by things that look good but are not good for us. People break covenants. And many of you, I know because I know you, have been hurt by broken covenants. People you've trusted have not been trustworthy. But God will never break his covenant with you. He loves you with a jealous love. He will never let you down. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never say, that's it. No, you're too much. 
I'm going. No, he never says that. Because he loves you with a jealous love. He loves you with a jealous love. So he's not envious of Caesar. He's jealous for his people. Where, how is Jesus going to bring his people back? His bride that keeps walking away from him. How is he going to reclaim them? The jealous love of God. Where is it going to take him? Oh, I wasn't expecting that one now. That is Jean-Paul and I on our wedding day. Very nice. But I was going to speak to that. There should be one of the cross. I might actually need John's help. Was there one before that? John, help me. It's not working. (laughs) Okay, go back. Okay. There we go. The jealous love of God takes him to the cross. Takes him to the cross. Takes him to the cross. Now, we're going to respond to this love. I'm not, I'm not finished. But I just, as I've just been thinking about this, I'd love to take this moment just to meditate on him, on his cross. We're only halfway through the preach. I know it's unusual. We don't usually stop a preach halfway through. But Jesus' jealous love took him to the cross. Oh, the jealous love of God, that searching for his precious bride, led him to the rugged cross, and there the bridegroom died. But from the ashes of his love, there rose anew a beautiful vine, the image and the name of God, clothed in white, the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. Just take a moment to think on that, to think about Jesus' love. Jesus, I just thank you that your love took you to the cross. That your covenant with us took you to the cross. You knew we couldn't sort ourselves out. You knew we couldn't make ourselves clean. You knew we couldn't untangle ourselves from sin. So you came and did it for us. Because you loved us and you're not giving up on us. That's actually love for us to sing right now. I know this, we don't usually do this, but I just I love for us to sing. Because when I see the cross, when I think about Jesus, I just want to worship him. So I'm going to just lead us, just our voices. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died my richest gain i count but loss and poor content on all my pride see from his head his hands his feet sorrow and love flow 
Did as such love and sorrow meet, all thorns compose, so rich a crown, where the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. There is only one response that is appropriate when we see that Jesus gave everything to win us, that he loves us with a never-ending love, that his love poured out for us on the cross. There is only one response, which is to give him everything, Everything. And there, were, there have been moments in my life where I've said to God, yeah, I surrender everything, I surrender everything. And yet, I know that like the people of the Old Testament, like the people of the New Testament, I struggle to keep covenant with God. I struggle against sin, you know? We all do. None of us are immune to it. And the enemy will always try and destroy our relationship with God because it is so precious. Just as he tries to destroy our marriages because it's so, they are so precious. I'm grateful that the Morrises are doing their, their thing. It's great. And that they've got a passion for it. It's important because Satan hates them. And one thing that I always think of when, um, whenever niggles come into my marriage, whenever... Uh, the accuser comes in and starts reminding me of things of the past or there are difficulties. I always remember this day when I got married. And I remember the joy of it. We're very, very happy. <laughs> I remember the joy of it. I remember the presence of God. And, and I think, well, if God was so present there, he is for me and not against me. He is for us and not against us. In your relationship with God, the enemy will come in and he will try and he'll try and stop you from enjoying the joy, the joy of knowing Jesus. And he'll remind you of things of the past and he'll make you feel make you feel ashamed or he'll he'll just he'll try and tear you down. But there will be moments, hopefully, in your walk with God where you have experienced his Holy Spirit, where you've had that revelation of God loves me. Remember those moments. Treasure them up and look back on them when things get hard. Because, as it says in Isaiah 62, as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. He rejoices over you. Now, this I got from a lady called Corrie Ten Boom, who is, she, she was in the concentration camps in Germany in the, in the Second World War. 
terribly treated. And yet after the Second World War, she went to, um, to, the, to Germany and even to her own captors and told them about the love and the forgiveness of God. And the way she would explain what Jesus did for us on the cross was, it's like he threw our sin into a sea and put up a sign saying, no fishing. You can't get it back. So when Satan comes and he tries to remind you of all the rubbish in the past, you can say to him, "Mm -mm -mm, no fishing. No fishing. It's gone. It's gone. Jesus' death on the cross, his work on the cross was complete. You are clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean. Whatever you've been through, whatever trauma, whatever shame, whatever sin, you are clean. Don't pull it back up again. Don't let the enemy pull it back up again. He will try. So many people walk in guilt when actually Jesus wants them to rejoice. So many people walk in guilt. I've experienced that, walking in guilt for things. Where actually, Jesus is like, it's gone. It's in the sea. Stop getting your fishing rod out. Let's put it away. <laughs> No fishing. It's gone. Jesus has made us clean. We are his bride. And yet, on uh, the, I think it was the night that he was betrayed. Yeah, it was on the night that he was betrayed, before the Passover meal. John chapter 13. Jesus gets down on his knees and he starts washing his disciples' feet. And he comes up to Peter and Peter says, No, Lord. Not my feet. Uh, You can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, Andy, (laughs) Peter, (laughs) if you do not, let me wash your feet. You can have no part of me. And so Peter says, oh, then, then my face and my hands as well. And Jesus says, no, no, you've been bathed. If you're bathed, you are clean. Only your feet need washing. Jesus knows that as we go through life, stuff gets on our feet. We are clean. We are clean. No fishing. We are clean because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet, we go through life, niggles get in, envy might get in, annoyances get in, frustration, malice, slander. All things can get in, but remember, you are clean, but we need help washing our feet. And this week, Sophia uh, drew this beautiful family portrait. It was gorgeous. And then proceeded to draw her feet just coloured them in, as four-year-olds will. And I said to her, well, that's going to have to come off in the bath. And Jacob, bless him, this is her older brother, saw her feet and was shocked at the amount that she had coloured them in and took her feet in his hands and starts wiping her feet. And I thought, wow, isn't that that a beautiful picture of the church? Brothers and sisters going, oh, your feet look a bit dirty. Let me get that. Let me get that for you. Let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. And it's a tender thing. When we repent, when when we've got muck on us, when we have sinned, when we have done rubbish, we can feel like, oh, God doesn't love us anymore. We must be, he must be such a disappointment. But no. It says in that same passage, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's an act of love. He says, no, no, here, come to me. Let me clean you. Let me clean you. Let me wash you clean. And that's one of the important roles of the church is to come to each other and say, can I help you? You're struggling. Can I help you? Let's, let's wash that. Let's scrub that. But also, <laughs> sometimes we try and repent of things 
and we can't do it. And Jesus has to do it. This is Jacob's hands. When he goes out in the garden, he loves getting muddy. It gets filthy. And he comes in, and uh, I say to him, right, you've got to wash your hands with soap before lunch. And he will try very earnestly. He will try. He will try. He will try. Are they clean, Jacob? Yes, mommy, they're clean. Did you use soap? Yes. Can I see them? Okay. (laughs) They're not clean. He's trying, but they're not clean. He can't do it yet. He's six years old. He can't quite do it. So then I come alongside him and say, can I help you, please? Can I help you? And sometimes we need that from God as well. Sometimes we're struggling with something. We're really trying to get clean, but we can't do it. We can't do it. I had this experience a few years ago when I was trying to fast. I had no idea. I had no idea I had an issue with gluttony. I really didn't. Gluttony we don't really talk about. It's when you get ruled over by food. When food is, is, it becomes like you can't let it go. And I was trying to fast. I was only trying to fast chocolate. It wasn't even everything. It was just chocolate. It should be fine. It should be easy. And I couldn't do it. I really couldn't do it. And, and I was like, God, I'm really sorry. I can't do this. And I was feeling really disappointed with myself. Because I was like, come on. Why, why does this have such a hold on me? Why am I thinking about this all the time? Why can't I just give this up? And then the penny dropped. If Jesus didn't expect us to wash ourselves clean when he died on the cross why would he expect us to be able to get ourselves clean when we get our feet mucky he wants us to turn to him and say i want to be clean but there are moments when we have to say actually jesus i can't do this but you can and as soon as i realized that and i realized actually jesus was able to help me and i prayed lord god i can't do this i'm weak but you are strong i can't i can't give this up but you can help me Instantly, the hold of it was broken. I could fast it after that, no problem. And it hasn't retaken hold either, which is great, hallelujah. Now, that's like, might seem like a silly, a kind of a silly example, but there can be with anything, it can be with much more serious things, much more serious things. If, if you're struggling against sin and you're like, I really, I want to be clean, I, I want to honor God, but I can't, then just tell him, because he knows you're weak. He knows that you can't. He knows that you're struggling, and he wants to help you. He wants to come alongside you and say, let me get that for you. Let me get that for you. I know you've tried, but let me get that for you. And in um, James 4, it just kind of summarizes these things that we've been speaking about, the jealous love of God and cleansing our hands. It says, it says do you suppose it is for no purpose? That the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This is verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. It is appropriate to mourn our sin. It's appropriate to say, actually, God, I really don't want this in my life. This is destructive, and I'm sorry. But then after you've humbled yourselves, it says he will lift you up. He will exalt you. 
You don't need to carry that forward. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come near to God and say, I want to be clean. I want this gone. And he will help you. So we are going to, and that's his, his um, sorry, last slide, his vision for the bride. His vision for the bride at the end of the book of the Bible, at, sorry, at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, is that his people are prepared as his bride for the bridegroom. He wants us to be his holy people. We are his treasured possession. He has made us clean, but our feet get dirty, and he wants to help us clean them. Uh, in Revelation 21, I'll just finish here and then we will pray together. Revelation 21, it says, oops, bless her. Alice does that too. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. In the end, Jesus gets his bride. He wins her, and he makes her holy. And he, we will be presented to him as part of his holy people. When Jesus comes back, he is making us ready. Because we've got a job to do. We are his image. We are his name. We are his holy people. And by imaging him well, by bearing his name well, we will be able to show people what he's like and they will come in. They will come in to his kingdom. Jesus is a jealous God. He is jealous for you. He loves you with a never-ending love. He loves you. He's never going to let you down. He's not going to walk away from you. Whatever you are walking through, he is walking with you. He is walking with you. Whatever pain from the past, he can heal. Many pains take a long time to heal, but he will walk with you through that process. So to respond now, we've got plenty of time, which is lovely. We're going to um, just invite the Holy Spirit to move among us. We're going to then pray for each other and just have an opportunity to wash each other's feet. Just in threes around the room, we will start praying for each other. And then we're going to come back to worship. So, first of all, if you would stand with me. We're just going to wait, wait for the Lord just going to spend some time waiting and in this silence in this moment just offer him your heart quietly you and God just offer him your heart he loves you maybe this morning you need to be reminded of his love maybe there's some things that need washing clean maybe you need to know that your sins are in the sea and there's no fishing you can't get it out again we're going to bring ourselves at this, it's his church. We're going to bring ourselves back to God. And we're just going to wait here for a moment. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We come before you. 
Thank you, God. You are a jealous God. I thank you that you love us, that you're never going to leave us. I thank you that even though we mess up, you are faithful. You are faithful and you remain faithful. Holy Spirit, we give you this time now. Just come move among us. We wait for you, Lord Jesus.